<clears throat> I thought when when uh, when uh, while we were sitting, I was thinking uh, it came through my mind about um, one of the items in, in the news yesterday or the night before was that uh, the three hiking young people in Israel outside of Hebron were found and they're not living. And I got an email from my synagogue yesterday about sharing as a, as a community with the grief of their parents. It's, and I thought about mentioning it. And then I thought this morning about the, uh, the murder rate in any inner city of the United States where every morning mothers are bereaved and fathers are bereaved. And I thought, I can't think about those Israelis without thinking about the people in Oakland or the people in LA or the people in Pittsburgh or the people anywhere where it's not so, people in Laredo where it's not safe to walk across the street. And all of the mothers and fathers who are bereaved, and you think about it, you think, whoa. And if I only thought about that, I think it's a very, I, I, I don't think it, and I look around and I see that you're touched by all of those things as well. And I was so in, glad to be coming here this morning because I, talking always about variations of how do we support knowing, how do we not look away from what's true in the world and not be so discouraged that we don't address it. At what point do we, we not give in to dismay and say, well, it's completely a lost cause, people are out of control, you know that I, I think I want to begin and end with something about faith and uh, uh, what's the alternative? You know, we were talking earlier this morning a, a little bit, you know, teasing about um, or trying to be joking about uh, uh, old people spending a lot of their conversation talking about what's the matter with them because that's what old people talk about. What doesn't work anymore? This isn't working. My arthritis and my back and my front and my this and my that. You know, and everything that they've got. And at some point in the conversation, somebody will say, well, we are really full, of, we are really breaking. It's, you know, it's got shelf lives. All these parts have shelf lives. And they don't all give out at the same time. And someone will say, well, it's just a shelf life of parts. But it beats the alternative, meaning we're still here, and so that. But in, in fact, if you take that, you know, quite if you reflect on that, it really does, in most cases, beat the alternative of not being here. We get to be here again. We get to donate to another cause. We get to go to another birthday party. We get to enjoy another uh, holiday. We get to sit together as a community. We get to think about things. We get to read another poem. Maybe this would be a good time to read this. I didn't know when I'd read it, but I brought it because I knew I'd read it sometime. This is by a poet that I didn't know until I read this uh, essay about him. His name is Ron Paget. And does anybody know that poet? He must be. Um, older, because he'd been writing for decades. Uh, and he's writing something, um, the, the person writing about him says uh, his poetry is um, playful, 
but they are often serious. And that what they then quote is um, one of those playful and serious lines is, for there must be kindness somewhere else in the world, maybe even out of it, though I'm not crazy about the emptiness of outer space. I have to live here with finite space and inner space and with the horrible desire to love everybody, to love everything and be disappointed. I love that line, the horrible desire to love everything and be disappointed. As human beings, mostly, unless we're seriously depressed, we really want to love and connect and get excited about things and enjoy things. And sometimes we do. And everything is finite in this finite world. Every, I, I met with my... Um, I have a group of uh, Dharma teachers in various traditions. When we were saying all the different lineages, Dharma teachers of different lineages that have been meeting together, oh, a half a dozen times a year for 20 years or something, just talking about our lives. We talked the other day about about lots of things, and what's mythic and uh, what's not mythic in the, in, in the tradition. And we talked about uh, really the interest, of what reminded me in this particular poem is we don't live in outer space. You know, that one of the things of, of uh, one of the Dharma insights is things are what they are and they're just unfolding. And when they're unfolding out there and somewhere from the sphere of the cosmos, it's just life rolling on. But from the sphere of our lives, when it's rolling on in us, it matters a lot. So the finite and the infinite, the, all those parables that we hear about in Dharma study of a Zen teacher whose uh, son dies and he is bereft and weeping and crying and his students come and say, well, you know, you told us things arise and they pass away. And the Buddha said, this is one of the truths about life. Everything that arises passes away. You always told us all of these are natural things. And he says, that's all true. And I'm very, very sad. So that all the truth in the world does not make it, these things happen, does not make it supportable, doesn't make it not terrible when we are grieved in an awful way. And the alternative to not being grieved is to not care about anybody. And that's awful. So we are stuck in that, what did he call it here, Paget? The horrible, the horrible desire to love everything and be disappointed because things don't go well with everything. When you care about it, you have to worry about it. Or you don't have to, I guess, but you do for the most part. When you care about something, you attach to them. And then you wish well to them. I actually think that when we are saying the things that we're wishing, the reason that we connect is not only we hear stories, the content of which moves us, but maybe even more important, I think when someone is saying, I'm thinking about so-and-so, who this and that, this, what I feel is that person's care. And I think we, we really share our capacity to be compassionate with each other by modeling it out loud. I do, I think we do each other a, a, a you do me a kindness of uh, allowing me to attach to the, to remember that we're human beings and we can love each other and that makes it worthwhile in some way. Does that make sense, Steve? Um, actually, I have a question about that. Sure, Risa. Hi. Um, 
Um, so I was thinking about that very thing, and then um, reflecting on the third patriarch of sin, the verses in faith mind. And the very beginning got me stuck. So I was trying to mm. figure out: is it the translation, or do, am I missing it? And um, so, just to the point you make, uh, it says: uh, when love and hate are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Making the smallest distinction, however, and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. So I was trying to figure out what is this space? Is it the translation of the word love and hate? Because I know Chinese doesn't always translate directly. Um, or is, is there some midpoint that I'm missing? I don't think you're missing. I think I was going to start today by saying this is a summary of the last three weeks. And I know you were here last week. Were you here the week before? Ah. <laughs> when we gave out copies. Uh, we gave out copies last week. Yeah. Oh, okay, there it is. Uh, the th two weeks ago, I was reading from a book called uh, Trust in Mind, which is an exegesis of each line of that text, oh, to which I want to refer you, because uh, a man named, whose Dharma name is Mu Song, who wrote it, translates the first line. He talks about how hard it is to translate through languages and through centuries so that it, it's applicable. And so he, in that book, he gives various translations and interpretations. His interpretation of that first line, which really made my mind at ease after many decades of not liking it, is the great way is not difficult for those who are not attached to their preferences. I have preferences about everything. I do. I really wish this and not that. I, I, that between my mind and this is the way it is, what can I do now to help? There's a big eek in my mind in between. When I hear anything that's happening that really is um, disappointing to me. I was, I was thinking about it yesterday. I was thinking about we get excited about uh, I, I'm not going away from that no, question because because that was the question of that was the I think the context that we had the last two weeks that we went through several lines by lines. Other people were going to prepare interpretations of different lines for today. Did I scare you away with the homework or did anybody actually do that homework? Nobody did the homework. <laughs> Naomi did the homework. Okay. <laughs> Naomi will soon, <laughs> will soon do her homework. I'll maybe right away. There was another hand. Where, where? Oh, well, I... No, Lynn. <laughs> that was a half of a hand, wait. It was a half a hand because my paper is not in my lap, but I could remember. <laughs> no, well, look for the paper. We'll take, I'll, I'll, I'll give you some time. Because they're very hard to take just like that. When love and hate are both absent, I would prefer to translate as when my mind has not uh, tensed itself up uh, reflexively about in that eek way and can relax and say, wait a minute, this is what's happening. I wonder what's going to happen next and what can I do to affect what's going to happen next? And I think that what the Zen patriarch is meaning or what I'd like to read into it is that uh, not that you don't have responses to things based on preferences uh, from very small preferences 
to enormous preferences. Like I was thinking about it yesterday when I thought um, I have a few things I was going to say. Let me reorder them in my mind. What order I was going to say them. Some are not not such a. Some are, yesterday I looked at. Uh, I looked. I was watching soccer again. I told you last week I was watching World, Class, World Cup soccer. I love those soccer games. They are such consummate athletes. They honestly, they leap into the air, and while they're up in the air, they kick a soccer ball over their head going the other way. I mean, they're really, they're, it's really like watching a ballet. And they do it for 90 minutes with a 15-minute rest in the middle. It's incredible. I, don't, I can't imagine what their electrocardiograms look like or their <laughs> blood pressure. I mean, they're incredible athletes. And I watch the crowd. <coughs> And they're so excited about it. And there's a way of, I think to myself, you know, it's not that big of a deal, you know. One team is going to win and the other team is going to lose. But the people caught up in the yaying and the hooraying, at that moment, it's very important to them. But I think to myself, so what does it matter? A wins or B wins, or this happens or that. You know, but we get caught up in stuff. And I was thinking about they're having fun while they're caught up in it. Depends on afterwards whether they stomp down the, the stadium or have fights with each other, which often happens when a, when a, when a match is finished in, in, in soccer games or in other things where people lose it, they forget. That was a game and partiality was important. Now we're going home. And I actually love it that, uh, I don't know whether this is true of all soccer games, but it looks like the teams keep helping each other up off the ground and patting each other on the back. And it looks collegial. It looks like they remember, for the most part, that they're having a game. I don't know. But I was thinking, I was reading that, I was reading, I was watching the soccer, and I think, this is really not, you know, people have preferences, but it's really not that important. And look in the newspaper, I really do have preferences that seem to me to be of more significance. Like, it does upset me that the Supreme Court voted to, I mean, I can't even believe that. that you know, I see Naomi again. I mean, how can that happen? We are, I don't know how many years past Roe v. Wade. We are, how many years since women's health be, was important to us? What can be happening? It's very easy for my mind to think now this, who else next, da 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 da, -da. I read the, in the paper about the Israeli teenagers. I think about what about teenagers in Iraq? What's going on there now? And uh, reading anything else in the paper, it's very hard to step back and say, "Well, this is the result, I suppose, of what's all been building up over decades. What will I do now that will be worthwhile and helpful?" I write another email. I donate to another cause. Will I write a letter to the editor? Is anybody listening? What will I do? One of the things I hope to be able to do, whatever I, it is that I do, I want to do it with a clear mind. And the mind, my mind anyway, I, I assume yours, when it reads something that's so dismaying, becomes dismayed. And in the dismay, it thinks up all kinds of but it's going to be like this, and from that's downhill all the way, and it can't get better, and da 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 da. And then if I if I wait a little while, the, my mind uh, settles down a little bit. And ap apropos of love and high hate or absent, 
You say to yourself, well, I guess that did happen. Okay. What to do now? I guess I'll get together with my friends and we'll talk about, okay, redoubling the efforts, okay, working on the midterm elections, okay, doing this or that. What's the alternative? Not doing anything? That's doing something, not doing anything. So there must be something I can do. What can I do? And I think that the answer is always relax, make the mind back to where it sees what's happening, but sees it through a lens that's not skewed by aversion or lust, because then I won't see clearly. Many times in that, I'm looking for this for that sutta right now, and I'm not finding it. But anybody's got it right there? Okay. Thank you. Sure. To set up what you like against what you dislike is a disease of the mind. I think that means to set up a story. Uh, this is good, this is not good. Say, wait a minute, this is what's happening. Now what? Now what? This is what's happening doesn't startle the mind. This is good, this is not good. The whole of this, apropos, remember I just told you that Zen story about the Zen master whose son dies, who says to deny the reality of things is to miss their reality. There is a reality. We do have relationships and we do care about them. To assert the emptiness of things is to miss their reality. And we are just children of children of children of children in this ongoing world from, a, from the point of view of uh, outer space. I remember saying, people sometimes would say, from the sphere of the cosmos, what does this matter? Uh, don't sweat the small stuff is what usually came before that. And from the sphere of the cosmos, what does this matter? I don't live in the sphere of the cosmos. I live here with this family and these connections, and they matter to me, and they matter to all of you. And we feel, because we hear, we feel moved by each other's stories, because uh, we, we connect with that feeling of, of care. This person cares about that. I'm sure that that's why. Almost, I want to hear Naomi's story and Lynn's story. I want to tell you one more thing about connecting with other people's feelings. Uh, there's an, uh, there's a, a summary in Mindful Magazine of a new book that's come out uh, by Dan Harris. Uh, it's called 10% uh, Happier. Anybody read it? It's very good. I, 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 read it, I read it in a day. It's a very easy, fast book to read. And it was like an, well, let me read you the end of this. This is just an excerpt from it. And uh, I liked it very much. Dan Harris is the, is the anchor of Nightline on ABC News and other things on ABC News. And he's been part of ABC News for a long time, at least a decade. And he's, and he's and it's clearly that's his, his work. He's been mostly went abroad, kind of like doing assignments all over the place, sometimes in very dangerous areas, so he's not a timid man. Um, and uh, the excerpt here in Mindful Magazine. Huh? The name of the book is 10% Happier. 
And this is Mindful Magazine, and this is Dan Harris. Um, and uh, he talks about a crucial time in his life where, as a result of being uh, deployed in uh, stressful war zones for a period of time, and then coming as a reporter and then coming back and then getting involved in some drug and uh, alcohol use, which he talks about quite straightforwardly in the book, he, uh, uh, which also contributes to a stressed mind, he had a panic attack on television while delivering the news, which, which they, they actually have photos of in this, um, uh, in this particular magazine. You can see his look of uh, anguish in the middle of being unable to, to speak. At which point he decided he needed to do something about that. And he began to search about how can I help this and went to different kinds of doctors and, and eventually went to different kinds of spiritual teachers. And he is very funny uh, when he depicts the different spiritual teachers. And particularly, you know, we come out, the, uh, we, the uh, Insight Meditation Movement comes out the hero of the story, ta-da-da, because uh, look at, right here after the picture, this is, that was Dan Harris. This is Dan Harris, you know, loosening his tie as he's having a panic attack. It's really, you, you really can look at his face, he doesn't look good. And this is Spirit Rock, a whole page, a, a full page picture of Spirit Rock, so. So we really figure very prominently. So he comes to Spirit Rock on a retreat. And this exit excerpt does not do justice to his experience at Spirit Rock, which he, which he relates really hour by hour. And it's very funny. How many people here have ever sat on a retreat up at the top of the hill? So how many people thought, I have to get out of here. I can't stay here another <laughs> second. You know, that... <laughs> And, uh, you know, I can't make it another 10 days. I'll never make it. What are they talking about? Give me a break. He does a lot of, uh, in this excerpt, I'm happy to say they left out a few excerpts, the, the parts where he um, is critical of uh, people's speaking voice. It's, it's, uh, I'm not even going to say what he says because it's going to be on a tape that's going to go all over the world. So never mind. You want to know that particular stuff, you can buy the book. But he is really spot on, uh, partly about the jargon that we tend to use. Uh, <laughs> what did he say was jargon? Uh, noble silence. He said, nobody told me about this silence. And what's so noble about it? I mean, it's ridiculous to sit here with people like zombies. They don't look at you. They don't talk. So <laughs> it's actually funny, you know, because you see it from somebody else's viewpoint. Anyway, what I wanted to, so the good news at the end of this is he finds it very helpful and he becomes a, really a serious practitioner of mindfulness meditation. He doesn't give up his day job. Uh, he said, I think he, he said, I was talking to Diane Sawyer about it and I was really excited about it and really turning people on at my network to go do it. And she said, don't give up your day job, Dan. But uh, he said, I am 10% happier. And then there's a lot of discussion about can you be 20 or 30 or how, but 10% happier. How many people here would like to be 10% happier? Yeah, it's all right, you know. Any percent happier is good. So at one point, he's gone on this 10-day retreat. 
He goes home, he, he then continues, he goes on a retreat at the, the Insight Meditation Society, IMS, uh, the Insight Meditation Society, which he said, and I'd never heard about this, he said people joke about it as being an acronym for, an acronym for I'm a mess. Uh, I am S, because he said, you know, that, uh, uh, well, I once heard wrong, I thought that Joseph Goldstein, in his kind of East Coast twang voice, was saying that it's one of the things that you begin to see, it's, it's, it's a lawful cosmos, and I thought he was saying it's an awful cosmos, <laughs> and I was a pretty um, anxious, nervous person at the time, and I thought that was true. It's an awful cosmos. Things happen to you. But that wasn't what he was saying, so I'm a mess, and it's an awful cosmos. But in the end, in the end, he comes out thinking this is really saving him, and in the end of the book, he says how many of his colleagues on ABC are now meditating different places. So who knows, you might come on retreat and find him on the next Zafu. And the, anyway, he's talking about at the end of his 10 days, he says, um, he says, uh, I'd li it, it's like I'd spent, this on the ninth day, say, it's like I'd spent the past five days being dragged by the head, being dragged by my head behind a motorboat, and now, all of a sudden, I'm up on water skis. This is an experience of my own mind I've never had before. A front row seat to watch the machinery of consciousness. It's thrilling, but it also produces some very practical insights. I get a real sense of how a few slippery little thoughts might, I might have in, say, the morning before I go to work, maybe after a quarrel with my wife, a story I read in the paper, or an imaginary dialogue with my boss, those thoughts could weasel their way into the stream of my mind and pool in unseen eddies from which they hector and haunt me throughout the day. Isn't that a really a good image? They pool in unseen eddies from which they hector and haunt me throughout the day. Thoughts calcify into opinions, little seeds of discontent blossom into bad moods. Unnoticed back pain makes me inexplicably irritable with anyone who happens to cross my path. And then at the end, he says, I know one thing for sure. There's much more for me to do. Whether or not 100% happy is achievable, I can definitely be more than 10% happier, and I'm excited to try. I often think of a quote from a writer I admired named Jeff Warren, who called meditation the next frontier of human exploration. And then he says, mindfulness, happiness, and not being a jerk are skills I can hone the rest of my life. I love that. Mindfulness, happiness, and not being a jerk. <laughs> I think not being a jerk is a really important thing to think about because in that same way that the mind catastrophizes, uh-oh, the Supreme Court, whoa, tomorrow, you know, calamity for everybody, maybe. You could be in a relationship for a long time. You tell me if this is not true. You could be in a relationship for a long time, and suddenly your partner says something that just falls wrong on your ears, just feels wrong, and ire arises, and you think, how can this person say this? How can this person say this? You know, they know I don't like this. They know this really upsets me when they do this or say this. I see that you know this. You know, how can I be with a person like this? It's a big mistake. I can't be with a person like this. This is, could be after 20 or 30 or 40 years where you already were with that person for that all along and you didn't leave. <laughs> I see that you get what I'm saying. <laughs> 
because the mind gets hysterical and it thinks all kinds of hysterical jerk thoughts. And so I really appreciated that. And it said, mindfulness, happiness, and not being a jerk are skills I can hone the rest of my life, every day, every moment, until senility or death. And the payoff is less reactivity, less rumination, and who knows? He said, I, get, I, uh, I, have, I, don't, I have willingness and curiosity. I have confidence and trust. Maybe another word I could use is faith. So that, it's a, that's lovely, isn't it? I think that, that what, what, I'm, what I, I, I was thinking about, going back to the Third Zen Patriarch and that moment when the mind is about, gets all wrinkled up and you can't see out of it, so you can't see straight. You know, we, we sometimes have used that, in, that expression in English. So I was so mad I couldn't see straight. Remember? You've heard that, haven't you? I think what happens when we get very mad is we can't see straight. Or um, it used to be that people could do some terrible crime, like shoot somebody, and then claim that they were momentarily insane. So it was a crime of passion. <laughs> used to be that a crime of passion was an excuse for getting away with it, something. But every crime is a crime of passion, isn't it? It's a crime of lust or desire, I have to have that, or I have to hit them, or I have to get back. They're all, anything that we do that hurts somebody else is an unexamined passion. And I think that mindfulness is a, is a process of continually examining what's actually happening. Oh, I was going to tell you that it's so easy to have a passion arise. Uh, my uh, my daughter Liz read that read Dan Harris's book before me. She was actually the person who told me um, told me about it, and she said I became vicariously indignant on your behalf because he didn't mention you. He mentioned everybody else in a whole Buddhist world that he learned from this one, the other one, that one, that one, that one. And how many? And they're all in his acknowledgement—a whole huge list. And I and then I subsequently read the book. I'm enjoying it, enjoying it, enjoying it. Then I'm reading his book of acknowledgement, his page of acknowledgements. Everybody's there, but me. Ah. <laughs> then I think to myself, of course I'm not there. I never met him. So I mean, uh, you know, I wasn't any place where he could have had an opinion about me. You know that. <laughs> Never been in a class, alas for him, but you know, whatever. But the mind right away thinks, ah. So that was like two degrees of separation, indignant. I'll be indignant on somebody else's behalf, you know. <laughs> but we are very vulnerable. And I, I think that the question that I want to ask myself, I read it in somebody's, somebody, somebody who sent me a story. One of the many people who sent, did send the story. I'm making a little pile of stories. Tells me it tells a story. I've forgotten who or what the story is about, but about uh, hearing about something and uh, becoming very upset about it, and subsequently looking back and thinking, I shouldn't, I didn't really need to get that upset. And she said, the, "What I'm going to think to myself into the future when my mind is mobilizing to become upset is, do I have enough information to freak out?" You know that because the mind freaks out way before we have enough uh, enough uh, information. Eek. Uh, so anyway, I want to be sure to hear the stories of the people who did the homework because they were going to tell 
Yeah, I, really, I was going to talk about thinking it over being the antidote to the confused mind. So we'll end up with that at some point. But in the meantime, the homework was for those people who weren't here, which many of you weren't here in the last two or three weeks or ever, is we all read a, uh, a, an essay, a poem called the third verses on the third on the faith mind by the third patriarch of zen which you can google at on your computer and print out for yourself verses on the faith mind and it begins the great way is not difficult for those who have no preferences when love and hate are both absent everything becomes clear and undisguised this is the line that Risa read before make the smallest distinction however and heaven and earth are set infinitely apart. I think the last line for me means it becomes impossible for you to make a clear determination of what's going on. If, you make, if, the, if, if your mind is already tinged with uh, yes or no, this should or shouldn't be happening, as soon as there's negativity in the mind, it's a little bit, it's a little bit skewed. And it's so hard not to not to hear with negativity. When I uh, when I listen to uh, I'm listening to my car radio say, and then they say, now we'll have uh, Senator so and so speaking, and I already didn't speak yet, or she didn't speak yet, and I think, oh, Senator so and so, that's the person with whom I agree, not the person with whom I disagree. You know, and so I'm already preparing or not preparing to hear clearly what this person is saying. Okay, Naomi, come up here, so I'll give you my microphone, and you tell what your opinion was of... Okay, I think, right? (coughs) Is that too loud? No, okay. Well, the first thing was... Um, as I read it over and over and over again, I just got more and more depressed by how far I am from, from this. And I thought, oh, they call it faith mind because you need a lot of faith in order to believe you could ever do this. Um, so, and I did think they must mean addicted to preferences that it couldn't be without preferences because we're alive. Um, But I not only suffer from or have many preferences, I I have a very judgmental mind, uh, sort of Supreme Court judgmental. And um, I I also... So here is a story. The lines I picked are... I'm all tied up with my glasses... It's okay. Okay. Uh, And the burdensome practice of judging brings annoyance and weariness. What benefit can be derived from distinctions and separation? And that's a lot of what I do. So here's the story. I was invited to go down to a... Um, assisted living facility to uh, do some teaching on theater and theater games and improv and and that kind of thing. 
Uh, and uh, I had been led to understand that there was also, that the, it was, I was being hired meant that I was going to be paid. Um, but, but it turned out I was being hired to volunteer. <laughs> so um, I drove down, and it was far away, and it was hard to park, and I went in, and I met the woman, Sally, who was uh, the developer of, of programming. And, and within minutes, and I walked in, and it was assisted living, and there were a number of people in the lobby sitting in wheelchairs and not speaking. And, um, and, that's that, uh, and what I confronted was my mind, with, uh, which is dealing with aging, and my fear of, of losing my faculties, and all of that. And I thought, um, get me out of here. <laughs> well, Sally came in, and she was very lively and very affectionate to everybody, the people in the, lo in the lobby. And then the people working there came in, and they were hugging the people and that were living there. And, and Sally talked to me, and my volunteer status became very clear. And I said, well, thank you, Sally, but um, I do my volunteering in Marin, where I don't have to drive so far. That's hard on me. But as we, she said, but let me show you around. So she took me by the hand, and at the same time, sort of like the Pied Piper, she said, anybody want to go with us? And there were three people, residents there, who came along. And they came along everywhere we went as she was showing me the facility. And they barely spoke. Uh, one man had on his shirt um, a big red paper heart. And the other man, and uh, my hunch is, actually, the three people were younger than I am. That's not hard. Um, and and um, they walked around with us, and Sally kept um, hugging everybody. Anyhow, by the time it was over, my mind was so confused by what was going on there, and my resistance, and my judgment, and my separation, and my rejection, and how... None of that was appropriate there, but I couldn't even think that. And the man with the red heart on his lapel every once in a while would cry, and then she would comfort him, and then every once in a while he would smile. And then at one point, um, we, she introduced us and we shook hands, and he said, I'm so happy. And I said, oh, I'm so glad, why? And he said, because I love you. But no, excuse me. He said, I'm in love with you. <laughs> and it was just, wow, like that. And, they, and then Sally pointed out these two people, the other two people, and she said, this woman is the guardian. If anybody comes in to the lobby that she doesn't feel right about, she takes care of it. And then she said, and this man will fix anything. And, 
And then what got perfectly clear was that the way they worked with people there was to recognize everybody's value and, and to support it and to embrace it. And, um, uh, I, and then finally at the end, I started kind of kidding around and talking to the people. And I could feel this, this what does it say here? How, what benefit can be derived from distinctions and separations? And I must add judgments and fears, uh, how I wanted to maintain a real separation from these people. I will never, I am not them, and I will never be them. And of course, that's all I can say. <laughs> so I don't have to say how many people can relate to that story. Thank you very much. So, Lynn. Oh, I put this up here. I give this to you. So I'm very happy to uh, be the last of the uh, sharing because it's the last paragraph that I want to highlight. Just let things be in their own way and there will be neither coming nor going. Obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. Your own true nature, that's where I was uh, meditating on. And I was invited to lead a, a movement meditation, and I had been thinking I wanted it to be your own nature, but I didn't quite know how to approach it. So this came in beautifully. And I called the, um, the exercise Relaxation, Awareness, Release. And then I just picked out words here like no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today, silence in motion, motion in silence, neither coming nor going, obey the nature of things, your own nature, and you will walk freely and undisturbed. That last word I like very much, undisturbed, undisturbed, that it comes up earlier in that whole essay. I don't have a copy in front of me, but it says, uh, when you make it, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. Where is it? But da 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 I don't the second paragraph. Be better with, be better with glasses. Okay. Yeah. When the deep meaning of things is not understood, the mind's essential peace is disturbed to no avail. You know, when you think about 
uh, that it's so powerful that Lynn ended on that uh, undisturbed. And when Naomi told her story, I mean, isn't that, I don't have to comment on it because it's so clear. But we walk into a situation and we're right away disturbed. Um, Probably many of us have had that experience of go to visit somebody in a, that kind of a facility with people sitting in the main hall as you come in, and uh, to keep a to keep an all right to keep a warm mind about it. I don't know what to keep about it. You know, keep flashing on when my father was in the last weeks of his life. He was in a. A, a, a facility for not a long-term living facility, a um, what do they call it? Convalescent hospital. And I used to think as I came, and there were lots of people in the lobby sitting around, I used to always think, so to speak, convalescent, because nobody actually convalesces from out of here, is what I, or not so many people convalesce out of here. And uh, they had also people who volunteered to come and uh, I was in my next to my father's bed where he was several weeks dying. And down the hall, the volunteers were organizing a sing-along of songs that the people who lived there would know. So they're all singing, The old gray mare, she ain't what she used to be. And I, think, and I thought, wait a minute, that's the wrong song for it. But, you know... Maybe it's the right song for there, <laughs> and it's a song that they all knew. So, <laughs> but I, when I visit those places, uh, when Naomi, when I visit those places to talk or to be with the people, I, you know, then I get in my car from the as I'm driving away, and I call one of my children and I say, "This is not what I want to do. I'm just letting you know in case you forgot." <laughs> try to avoid this. Nobody wants that. Nobody wants that. And they're very good places and they take, that sounded so moving about they recognize the best about the people. They, those people are really wonderful. They are terrific, the people who do the, you know, they really bodhisattvas, you know. That, uh, I should say the name of the place because yeah. it's very unusual. Yeah. It's called Age Song. Oh, I heard ads about that. Where is it? It's on uh, Bush and page is way down there. No, I heard, I hear, I hear, I hear ads about it. Yeah. Oh, Juanita's story. Right, right, right. Where? Thank you very much. Where is Juanita? That's that's that will get us back to two more things that I want to remember. How many people are not familiar with the uh, request for stories? I could just do that request again. Um, uh, some weeks ago, months ago, I, I was saying that every time I tell a story about my own experience, Naomi just told the story. Naomi's story, for instance, I went in a place, I became confused and overwhelmed on the basis of my fears that came up. After a while, my fear settled down, the confusion dispelled, and I felt connected and so and, and really warmed by the experience. And I said, all of the Dharma stories that we tell about what happened in the days of the Buddha and what happened now are all versions of, I was okay, then something happened and disturbed me, startled me, I became confused, 
Then after a while I became unconfused and I was all right again. And I said, you know, it's all like the twas blind, but now I see. It's all that same hymn. And I said, write me stories about your life. I went to the gas station and someone was helpful. In the supermarket, someone was not helpful. How the mind responded. My email is sylviaborsian at gmail.com. If I get enough stories, I'm going to put them in a book. And I'll write stories to go with them. And they'll all, but I really want to say that it's not that complicated. The dharmic truth that the mind is on its own. It gets confused, and if we're fortunate, or if we practice, it unconfuses. Over to Juanita. There you go, Juanita. It's going to tell you an unconfusion story. And then we'll take photos, because we have two families with three generations. So I want to take pictures of the two families with three generations. Okay, Juanita, go.
long. I'm sure the obvious. Uh, <laughs> when, when if this shows up in a book, we'll have to change some names, Juanita. <laughs> but uh, but uh, how the tagline Miguel has not signed up for a shift takes up residency in everybody's mind, and you know. Oh, and pre but you know I'm saying that like it wouldn't happen to me, but it, other things happen. Everybody's variation of Miguel didn't sign up for a shift. Uh, you know, really, thank you very much, Juanita. Write it up because until you until you discover that the mind can't put it down. My Miguel not signing up for a shift happened last year. The insurance company did not reimburse us for the money we paid for my husband's hospitalization where it says they will. So if for, and then in the small print it says take four to six weeks after you file all the papers. It took 14 months until they paid back. And uh, during the year I kept seeing that my mind was absolutely held captive with indignation about this. I'm pretty good about most things. Okay, it's not happening, it'll happen. What can you do? That you know, amount of aggravation is gonna make it come any sooner. All kinds of wise things. But I thought about the insurance company, became indignant. What do other people do who can't manage for 14 months? You know, at least we can manage for 14 And eventually they paid. And uh, one of my family said, you know, when they finally pay, you probably find something else to tag on. So far, I'm good. So far, I'm good. But we have two sets of three generations, so I want the other set first, not mine, to come up here. Someone with a camera. Who's got a camera? It's going to take three minutes. If you can stay three minutes, stay three minutes. You have a camera? You have a camera in the car. Okay, run, run, run. No, you don't have to. Okay, wherever you want. Well, we'll put the grandmother in the middle. How about that? Okay. <laughs> Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.